Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kaya and your host, bringing you on-the-ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. In this episode, Bill interviews Christine Boren, the founder of PyX, a company that tracks the public auction market data in the art industry. The episode covers various topics, including fractionalization, NFTs, investing in art, and the democratization of access to products. Christine outlines PyX's methodology for creating an auction market index and the challenges of investing in art. Listen in. Welcome to Educational Alpha, Christine. Christine Boren, great to see you again. Well, very nice to see you, Bill. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. So uh, the concept is to provide education around investment opportunities. We're going to cover that with art. But as a public service announcement, I do have to say that the last time I saw you was in Berkeley Square in London at the Hedonism Wine Shop. I would say the very best wine shop I have been into in the world. Outstanding spot. Oh, wow. Thank you. I'll pass the the compliment to who, who deserves it. Yeah. So was, I think it, maybe that's a good segue because I guess wine is an asset class too, and it is in the collectible space. And I think that's also in the the family DNA of your household too. But, uh, but maybe before we get into uh, art as an asset class, something we do enjoy, but also could be an investment opportunity as well, but maybe just introduce Christine a little bit to the audience. Sure. So my name is Christine Boron. I was born and raised in France, but very early on had a, an international bug that threw a very long path to me to PyX. So PyX is Passion Investment Exchange. This is a company I founded in 2014 in London with the goal to track art markets and especially public auctions at Christie's Sotheby's and Phillips, and try to understand what's happening with a very rational brain. I mean, art is an asset of passion. And my goal was to make sure I would create the tools to be able to analyze what was happening and understand in order to take advantage of the, the amazing opportunities that are in the art market. How did I end up doing this in 2014? Well, I came across the art market back in 1998, a few years after I graduated, I got my MBA from Wharton, and I was really fascinated by the internet at the time that was uh, creating so much uh, opportunities. And I looked at an idea for an internet company, and almost by chance, I tried to buy a painting and found the art market very inefficient. And I thought, okay, this is, I can create an internet company and make it much more efficient, especially on the distribution channel. So I started a company name at the time, paintingsdirect.com. And we built a website and started to uh, sell art. And already in 2000, we were representing more than 500 contemporary artists and were selling art online. And we were based in New York. Now, over the, the years, one thing I understood is that the art market is really not transparent. It's very confusing, but it's a very, very fascinating market. So I got the bug and decided I would stay in this market until I can really understand it. And PyX is the ultimate effort to understand that market. And uh, today, I think we're doing an excellent job at seeing very clearly through the art market. So uh, a few things there, Christine, and any listeners to this program have heard this line before. When I hear the word inefficiency, the first word that comes to my mind is alpha. 
you find uh, upside return in very inefficient markets. I, I want to maybe uh, come to that as well. But it's interesting that you were talking about bringing a maybe rational thought process to a passion. So I think most of us think about artwork as a, as a hobby or maybe your case and others as a passion. And I did go to uh, PyX's website just before we logged on here. And I was immediately struck about how quantitative the approach is. So you can think about this uh, perhaps as an asset class to be analyzed as opposed to uh, just an esoteric thing that doesn't have cash flow attached to it. And as we spoke about, it also has costs, insurance and storage as well. So how did what was the, the turning point for you to look at this beyond a passion? And what were the quantitative building blocks that you were able to put in place to analyze art as an asset class? Well, first, I think you're making a very good point. You know, when you talk about passion, people think it's more like a betting game than, than a financial investment. But the thing, I mean, to me, first, the first thing that really convinced me that there was an opportunity to understand the market is when you think about the commodities market. I mean, it's not passion that drives price there, but it's the weather. It's a lot of things that events that suddenly can change everything, like, like a war or, and these are not things that you necessarily can rationally plan. So I think there are other asset class where there are elements that pop up and change everything, but that it gives you even more reason to track the market and try to understand it. So in the art market, you know, once I convinced myself that you could develop a framework to understand what was happening, the first thing, the first step, as you mentioned, was to get the data. Because, I mean, obviously, you have to start with the data. And the art market, you could split the art market in really two different markets. The first one would be what's called the private market. So these are art dealers, galleries, everything that is sold not in front of the public. And then the other side is the public auction market. And these are the public auctions that are arranged by, you know, famously Christie's, Sotheby's, Phillips, Bonham's, and then thousands of other auction houses. And when you look at the market, it's almost like 50-50, I mean, overall. And the private market, forget about it. There's no data because there's absolutely no requirement from any of the parties to submit officially the results. So that market is completely not transparent. And sometimes you can read some data in the newspapers. But, you know, I always love whenever actually a source of information for that market are lawsuits when a collector eventually sues the dealers. And then there is a requirement for giving data. And I always love when you get that data to compare it to historical newspapers record. And it's very rare when the official data matches what was said before. So really that market, we don't even look at it because it's just not, you just don't get, you don't get data. Now the other market, market is very, very interesting because there, there is data, number one, and number two, it really gives you an idea because an artwork is offered for sale at a public auction. A lot of communication is made ahead of the sales, so it will have broad reach. Any party who is interested can then bid and the highest price will win. So whatever the result of that public auction is, it really gives you a very good idea of the value of the art asset at that time. And so when we look at the public option market, you, you have really three leaders, which are Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips, and then the other auction houses. And we 
I extract mostly Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips because these are the largest auction houses. They are the most consistent in providing prices. And that allows us to have a very exhaustive and very good quality database. And this data, we collect ourselves. So we go directly to the auction houses. I mean, the information they publish. And as a third-party provider, we collect that data. So that's the first step, getting the data. Second step was to develop the analysis because analyzing public auction results is not absolutely not similar to analyzing uh, stock data. So we had to develop our own uh, uh, methodology on how to analyze it. And that's what we've done, for example, through our uh, auction market index, the PIEX AMI that tracks the sales at the auction level or at the total uh, market level. So a couple of follow-ons there, Christine. So I just got back from a, a big conference in New York, and it was indicative of what we're seeing, which is democratization of access to product. And and, and I was uh, had the honor and pleasure of making some remarks at the beginning of the conference. And, and I talked about this democratization trend as $80 trillion going from the baby boomers down to the next generation. And then if you look at the, the capital markets, the equity markets in the U.S., they're about 40-some-odd trillion. So there's no way $80 trillion can fit into a $40 trillion bucket. And this next generation, they're interested in a lot of things that my generation was not. And it includes, I think, art. And their definition of art may be different than mine as well. So I think we've got this whole new class of investors coming up and how they're going to get interested in art. So maybe a two-part question, and we can take this one at a time. And I think you answered the first one, which was, is there a way of buying in through an index? That's usually the first safe way of getting in if it's an investable index. You mentioned index. I'm curious if that index is investable if I want to get exposure that way. And then secondly, we could talk about this afterwards, the concept of fractionalization. And we've had NFTs, and I don't know if they're necessarily one and the same. At 30,000 feet, they are, but maybe ground level different. So maybe start with getting access. Is there an index that I can kind of get that toe in the water? So there are multiple indexes in the art market that are developed by different companies. I think the biggest challenge with the index is the basket on which you build the index. And if the basket is in some ways not doesn't reflect the whole market. It will, uh, I mean, you have to know exactly what's in that basket. And, and unfortunately, the art market, often that basket is not very transparent. Our index, and that's why we developed it, is based on everything, absolutely everything that is sold at Christie's, Sotheby's, and the Phillips. So it includes a lot of different categories. It's not only fine art, but also luxury items, which can be watches, jewels, anything that uh, the, the auction houses uh, would sell at public auction. So that's the AMI, the top index. At this time, it is not investable, but we are working on a few projects because we think it could be a great opportunity, especially as we can decline the same methodology and developing indexes for different categories. So you could have an impressionist index, a contemporary index, or you could have a watch index or jewelry. I mean, it's adaptable. So I think that's interesting, but to me, in some ways, if I play devil advocates, I always find the problem with indexes, especially in the art market, is that you, you talked about it. You said art is it's an asset of passion. So when you invest in the index, the passion is not that much here. So I think more interesting are ways that can be developed 
to allow people to invest, not in an index that is kind of a mix of everything, but more in particular artwork. And that's where we arrived to the second concept you wanted to discuss. If you don't invest in artwork, you're not a passionate person. <laughs> I think that, <laughs> which I think there's something to be said for that. So we'll leave that at, at uh, and the listener can react as they uh, see fit. So uh, fractionalization, uh, yeah, I think like so many opportunities, Christine, at least in my view, I'm just enamored with the concept of distributed ledger and what that truly means and the ability to either eliminate or tamp down the intermediary. And if you and I want to transact, why do I need five or six banks and intermediaries in between on anything? So I think that that is going to be a breakthrough to the world in, in logistics and in infrastructure and also in investing. But then so many times we take the rail system, which defines distributed ledger, and then we talk about the silliest things that sit on top of that. And it's you know, all sorts of uh, virtual currencies. And this isn't, uh, that's not a Bitcoin hater statement, but things like Dogecoin, and we have hundreds of these out there. And what are they really worth? Who the hell knows? And then when it comes to art, the first thing that comes across the rails is an NFT by a living artist named Beeple, and it sold at Sotheby's for $69 million. And we were talking a moment ago, I, th I think you can still find it on the Coinbase and other sites, that B20 token is now trading at just a fractional cents on the dollar. And that's a, a, a real economic concept as well. So, so I think sometimes the euphoria of silliness takes away what could be a tremendous opportunity where there can be fractional ownership. So you could take that in whatever direction you want, but I'm curious to see your views and, and how that might democratize artwork. Well, I want to start actually by talking about the NFT and the Beeple cell, because I watched that cell, which, by the way, it wasn't that exciting. It was an online cell. So, and maybe I should, I should give a little bit of background before that, because Public auction sale that I mentioned before are really interesting to watch, especially if you like to uh, buy art. Because a public auction sale, usually you have an auctioneer in a room. You have in the room, you can have some public, but you also have all the specialists of the auction houses. And then one artwork after another one comes to uh, offer, and you have the bid coming in. And then you can watch them. You can go to the auction house, you can watch it online. And it's really, really interesting. I mean, especially once you start understanding all the nitty gritties of the, the cell. Now, when the people sale happened, it wasn't a, it, it was not in a loop. We were in the middle of COVID. It was March 2021. And actually, the auction houses had gone through the most horrific time because they could not arrange start March 2020. I mean, already for the a year, they were not able to arrange auctions in a room. So they had to do all this thing online. And before COVID hit, the auction houses were really not online. You know, I, I definitely know about it because I tried to, you know, I started to sell art online in 1998. And by March 2000, the auction house still did not have a large amount of art sold online. They were organizing a few auction, a few auction online, but it was really minor. So, but then obviously with COVID, they suddenly had to change completely. And between March and I think uh, beginning of July, the only auctions they could arrange was online. And I can tell you the results of these auctions was really not good. It was really bad compared to the uh, the live auctions. So when the Google sale came, and that was an online sale, the market was still very depressed, honestly. Sales were bad. I mean, it was such a fall. And you can see it on a website with the NMI. You can see it was a complete collapse 
of the sales, almost like a repeat of uh, 20, the 2008 crisis for the, for the art market, which was part of it. So when that lot, that one NFT, which nobody knew what it was, started to go and the bids increased like that, and it went up and up and up to 69 million, for a lot to be sold at 69 million was unbelievable. Just a few months before, we saw a lot sold for just a few million, and that was just unbelievable online. So there was an unbelievable excitement in the art market that such a price could be achieved. And from then on, all the other auction houses started to create NFTs because obviously it was, you know, this showed great demand, great excitement. And I think when you understand the history of what had happened before, it's easier to understand how the market got crazy about NFTs. In addition to the fact that now NFTs really allowed digital artists who were doing digital art, whether they were JPEGs or video, it allowed them now to have a way to sell their creativity, their, their, their artworks, which was not really possible before that in the in a live auction room. So I think because of that, the NFTs really created that the market grew and that's why there was such an enthusiasm. Now, I think as all trends and waves, and as you see often in the art market, that the market grew, grew, grew to a point that it was not sustainable and then started to fall down. And the prices that were achieved were obviously not sustainable. So that's why today we still see some NFT being sold. I think it is still a very good way, technology, to sell a lot of these digital assets. But the market for digital assets is not enormous yet. It may grow in the future, maybe, maybe not. You know, as soon as the live auction came back at the production houses, we saw the market sit back to real artwork. I mean, these tangible artworks that people can buy and see and touch. So I think NFTs are, I mean, the NFT itself, I'm not talking about blockchain and fractionalization of art yet, but I think this shows, to me, it's a very, it, it really shows the core of the art market which is to be super volatile when you have this big rise of interest. And then after that, later on, that the market may go down and cool down. And that's very important to understand when you invest in the art market because you need to be ready for that. And if you want to buy low and sell high, you better understand the market in order to time it because it could go horribly wrong and you could buy high and sell low. And obviously, in that case, you better hope that you... You bought the artwork because you liked it and not because you wanted it to be a good investment. Well, and uh, while you were speaking, Christine, I did look up this B20 token, which is the people artwork. And it's on several sites. I'm happened to be looking at something called coincarp.com. But in March of 21, the individual tokens were, were trading at almost 30. The good news is they were up 2.5% yesterday. Bad news is they're trading at eight cents, down from twenty nine. So, in the finance parlance, they call that the dead cat bounce. <laughs> so it came down and and stayed down. But I think that volatility is always going to be there, particularly in something that doesn't trade very often. And and I think the concept that a lot of investors misunderstand is holding for the long term is so critically important. It's probably more true for artwork that if I want to go in and make a quick buck, is that possible? I guess it is, but I think you've got to be a a savvy investor, do your research upfront, 
and be prepared to hold for, for the longer term. And it's probably by maybe PIAX and other venues, there's ways of determining trends and movements, but you, you can respond to that. And maybe as we think about moving toward a close, maybe giving the listeners some advice that if they have somewhat of a passion for art, and if I look at the listener can't see this, but I obviously you're a much uh, better eye than I. I see the paintings behind you and I've got my Kaya Charter and a couple of things from Bed Bath Beyond that happen to match the green paint on my wall. But but if you like art, how do you get started? Uh, and is it through some kind of fractional ownership or is it doing research on an artist or coming to your website? So maybe a, a bit of a tip is how you begin. I think if you like art and you want to buy art, you first have to be very honest with yourself. Do I buy art because I want to enjoy the art and then it's a passion purchase? Or do I buy art because it's an investment? And that's, you have to be very clear in your mind. I mean, if it's kind of in the middle, it's neither going to be, the risk is that it's not going to be good for any of these purposes. So once you're very clear with it, you know, if you buy art because it's interesting, then, you know, just buy what you like. If it's a passion, if it's because you want to just have good art around you, definitely don't listen to anyone. Build your understanding, watch a lot of art, talk to a lot of people, read about it, and buy what you like. And then forget about the investment. One of the, there's this collector who I really like, and he told me, I was asking him about whether it was an investment, and he said, no, 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 buying art is the best way to spend a fortune. So art can be a cost and that's it and, and that's fine. So uh, there are quite a lot of people who do that just for the passion. Now, if it's an investment, completely different. Never buy what you like. Buy what the data tells you is a good time to buy and be very clear with yourself when you buy it about when you think you should sell it and track it, track the data. The challenge is that art doesn't trade on an ongoing basis, but there are comparables that are out there, and it's very important to, to track them. It's very important to track not only what's happening in your local market, but also in other places of the world. And you really need to always have your finger on the market because at some point, the market may go up and down and you may have a very small window to exit if, uh, if it's an investment and, and you have certain targets to, to match. So definitely get the data. That's definitely important. And then uh, just one quick follow-up. If I, I take this from sort of a, a hard, cold investment approach, devoid of passion, which maybe defines some of us, uh, present company excluded, at least for you, then I'm, I think a couple things come to my mind. What is the correlation to other things I might own? And then we are in a highly inflationary environment. I just saw neither one of us are in the UK right now, but inflation is sustaining at almost 10% there too. So trying to maintain uh, economic prosperity in that environment is very tough to do. So how is it art as an inflation hedge? And then does it correlate to uh, many other things I might hold in my portfolio? So I, just looking at the data, I think no one can say that art is not correlated to other assets. I mean, it's, uh, if you just go on the homepage of PyX.co, you'll see the PyX AMI since 2007, and you will see very well the crisis of uh, 2008. You would see the Asia crisis of 16. You'll see the crisis. I mean, you, you'll see so many crises. So it is correlated, but usually with a delay. Now, the delay allows for a lot of opportunities. The art market usually doesn't react as fast because just because of the calendar of sales. There are important sales in May and November, for example. So if the crisis happens in uh, January, 
you're not going to see it reflected in the market until May. So that's an interesting thing about the art market. In terms of inflation, again, the art market is super volatile. So if you invest in artworks at the right time, but the upside you can see can completely make it. I mean, like this is uh, inflation seems like almost, I mean, this you, you can see unbelievable upside on some of the artwork, but bear in mind that you can also see very, very deep downside. So I would say inflation can help with inflation, but be very, very aware of the volatility because you don't want, in order to hedge yourself against inflation, suffer from tremendous volatility. Yeah. And I think probably like a lot of uh, so-called asset classes, you've got to do your homework. You've got to buy right. Uh, dispersion, even amongst artists with common themes, is probably enormous. And some of it probably has to do with recognition of name and brand and the prior work they had done. So it's, it is a, a complicated space. But I think maybe coming to PIX to uh, demystify this. And, and the point you made as well is an interesting one in that uh, if the market draws down 50% in the GFC, Mona Lisa might look a little bit sad, but she has no idea the market drew down 50%. So it makes sense that there's going to be a, a bit of a lag and maybe less volatility and more smoothing of prices. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so uh, uh, Christine, a great tour in a very fast 25, 30 minutes. Always enjoy your insights and we'll instruct uh, the listeners to maybe uh, take a closer look at your website as, as one uh, way of maybe understanding how to demystify uh, something that I think is opaque to many investors, but it maybe opens their eyes up to what could be a very, very good uh, addition to the portfolio. So thank you. Well, thank you. And for sure, this is a fascinating market, never boring. So definitely one to look at. Okay, I'll see you back at Hedonism. <laughs> for sure. Great. Thanks, Christine. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time.